Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be focusing our attention on verses 4 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 12. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1008. Now, in the summer of 2022, my family and I went out west for a few weeks of vacation, and while we were there, we visited a a smaller town called Columbia, California. Now, this little town is dedicated to reenacting the era of the gold rush. There were saloons, a place to pan for gold, a stagecoach, and one of those blacksmith shops. Anyone who's been to one of these historical reenactment sites has seen one of these demonstrations before, like at Williamsburg, right? The Blacksmith has a forge specially designed for this task. He fuels it with coal, stokes it with bellows, and once the forge is hot enough, he puts a chosen piece of metal into the flames and heats it until it's red hot and malleable. He quickly removes the metal, places it on his anvil, and begins to pound it, slowly shaping this piece of metal into something that is useful. This process continues in the heat, on the anvil, in the heat, on the anvil, until finally the smith has reached the end of his shaping work and he plunges this piece of metal into a bath of water and the steam and rises up and hisses as it quickly cools. The technical name for this is called quenching. I didn't know that, but as I was looking it up, it's called to quench the metal when you put it into the water like that. And as it quickly cools, it actually strengthens the metal into the shape that you have formed it into so that it can function well as a horseshoe or as a kettle or a knife. The process of transforming a piece of metal into a masterpiece of craftsmanship is long, it's hot, it's trying. But in the end, the smith produces something that is useful and beautiful. As we come to our passage for this morning, we see that God has a purpose to transform His people, to reshape them, to mold them into a renewed creature. We see this throughout Scripture, particularly in Romans chapter 8. We read that those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, God has a purpose to transform His people, to conform them into the image of His Son. Even before the world began, He had this purpose in mind for His people. But this process of transformation isn't fast. It isn't easy. It isn't without pain. Rather, the Lord puts His children through a process of hardships and struggles as a means to transform us. Or to use the imagery of Hebrews 12, God disciplines us as His own children to mold us and to shape us into the image of His Son. Have you ever felt as though you were in the Father's forge. A time in your life when the pain of this world had broken you down and it felt like each providence was a blow of a hammer. 
Each day seemed to bring more and more hardships. When we go through such times, it's very easy and maybe even natural for us to believe that God has abandoned us. It's tempting to believe that heart disease or losing a job, a torn ligament, or even a stubbed toe are God's way of punishing or abandoning us. But the hope of God's Word teaches us the exact opposite. Rather, what we see is that God lovingly uses pain in this world to mold us and to shape us into the image of Christ. As Puritan Richard Sibbs is quoted as saying, God's rod of discipline is a pencil to write Christ upon our hearts. Like a caring father, He ordains each and every hardship with the purpose of making us more obedient, more humble, more holy. And just as the blacksmith has a design in mind before he begins his work, so too does God. He has sovereignly chosen you as an object of His grace to bring you to glory, perfected through the loving process of discipline. However, Each of us who have been predestined for this glory must first be forged by the heat, by the hammer, and by the waters of God's loving discipline. So hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is God's word for us, His people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, gracious and almighty God, who speaks to us by Your word and spirit, we come before You with open hearts and minds, eager to hear the message that You have for us today. Help us to understand the depth of your love for us, revealed through your discipline, and teach us to embrace your shaping hand with trust and humility. May the words of Scripture penetrate our hearts, transforming us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
in whom we find our hope and salvation. Give us the grace to respond in faith and obedience, drawing closer to you with every word we hear. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As parents, why do we discipline our children? As strange as it may sound to you, children, we do it because we love you. You see, parents are called to discipline their children with purpose. And the purpose is to shape and mold a child to grow into an adult who can function well. We teach children to share because sharing is the basis of relationship. We teach children to be on time and to work hard because these are important factors for success in the world. We teach them to eat their vegetables because you need the practice of eating healthful foods. We bring our children to church and teach them to read the call to worship, sing the hymns, listen to the sermon, recite the prayers because children need to learn how to worship God. This is the point of the promise attached to the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is, honor your father and mother. Why? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see, despite what children might feel in the moment, parents give curfews, suspend privileges, even ground their children not to ruin their lives, as they often will declare but to give you life, to teach you, to love you. As Proverbs 13 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. To put it another way, if you do not discipline your child, the world will. There will be consequences for poor behavior in this world. And the question as parents that we have to answer is, do we want those consequences to be our loving discipline or the cruel punishment of social rejection or metabolic disease or spiritual lethargy or untimely death? The first thing that we see in our passage is that God is not willing to allow His children to remain undisciplined. And we who are in Christ, must embrace this discipline, not as a sign of God's rejection, but a sign of His parental love to us. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. There we read, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Now, as you remember, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to a church that's undergone a period of persecution. And they're contemplating returning to their old ways. You see, Judaism was a known religion within the Roman world. And therefore, it was tolerated within society. It was a safe religion to a certain extent. Christianity, on the other hand, was a new upstart religion. 
They were an unknown religious movement, which meant much suspicion. So they were constantly the targets of persecution. Historically, we know that both Jews and Romans would target Christians for their faith. In chapter 10, we read that they had endured some hardships. Public reproach, affliction, they had their property taken, and some were even imprisoned. But here we read that the persecution had not yet progressed to the point of them shedding blood. There were not martyrs in their community yet. And the author is saying to this church, as they're undergoing this persecution, as they're undergoing this hardship, do not turn back from following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there are hardships. Yes, there are struggles. But these are not signs that God has disapproved of you, but rather they are signs of His fatherly love and discipline. And therefore, you must embrace the heat of these struggles as a sign of God's love. Here he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. A few things to note from this quote, the first is that the Lord addresses us as His sons. This is central if we would embrace the heat of discipline. We must understand and we must embrace for ourselves this identity that we are children of God. Because if we do not understand ourselves as a child of God, then everything else that follows will not make sense. We have been adopted through the work of Christ, and now we are brought into the family of God, and we are now being raised as His children. God is not bringing hardships into our lives as a stranger or even as a job, but rather as a parent who wants what is best. Second, we see this parent relationship expressed by the word discipline. This word refers to the process of training a child through education and experiences. This type of discipline is not in response to poor behavior, rather it is the proactive work of a guardian to train up a child in the way that he should go. Right? It's not free-range parenting. It's thoughtful parenting. It's purposeful parenting. In relation to the church, it is parenting that ensures your child is participating in worship, learning in Sunday school, reading scripture, memorizing the catechism, right? It's being intentional about bringing your child to the Lord Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism, training them up towards communion and confirmation. All of these are positive steps that parents take to shape and to mold their child towards maturity in Christ. And God is doing these things in your life. He is bringing into your life all of the experiences that you have. Not one of them wasted intentionally training you with each and every experience that you go through. And as the verse says, this is a sign of his love. Third, we see this parental relationship expressed by the word chastise. Now, unlike discipline, to chastise does mean to punish. Not eternal punishment, not rejection, but correction. As Christians, as children of God, 
We have been forgiven of our sin by the work of Christ. This forgiveness is past, it's present, and it is future. We will not receive the punishment that our sins deserve which the Word of God teaches us is all the miseries of this life, death itself and the pains of hell forever. That's the punishment that we deserve to receive. But Christ has borne that punishment for us. He has taken on Himself the punishment that was due for our sins. Nevertheless, we need to understand that in this life, though we have been forgiven of our sin, we still struggle with sin. We still continue to wander. Our eyes continue to gaze lustfully. Our hearts continue to serve wealth. We continue to struggle with envy and greed and vengeance. And God will lovingly punish us so that we will turn from our sin. To correct us. To put us on the path so that we do not go down the road of sin any longer. He's not willing to allow his children to squander their birthright of holiness by continuing in their sin. And therefore, God punishes us, as the verse says, as a sign of receiving us into his family. As John Calvin notes, the scourges of God bear witness of His love for us. I want to pause for a moment because I understand that many of you have endured hardships that I don't even, I can't even imagine. You've experienced loss or pain or abuse. And I don't want to make light of those experiences. Nor do I want you to go to a place where you believe, because you hear this word chastised, that God is being vengeful in His discipline against you. He is not like our earthly parents who often discipline out of anger, who can cross the line even to abuse. Not all hardships are punitive. And not all pain is the result of God's vengeance against His children. None of the pain is a result of God's vengeance against His children because the vengeance for our sin was poured out on Christ. I want you to trust. I want you to see your life that God is sovereignly orchestrating your life so that everything that happens to you is being used by God for your good. To embrace the mystery of Romans 8.28. That we know that for those who love God, He will work all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. This verse doesn't mean that everything will make you happy. It means that God has sovereignly ordained everything in the life of His children to lead to their eternal good. Not one tear will be wasted. Every dark night of the soul will be followed by the light of morning. And therefore, in faith, we must embrace the heat of His discipline, both directive and corrective, knowing that while the world means it for evil, God means it all for our good. This week, I heard on a podcast, a man explaining this thought experiment that he had conducted that made me think about God's purposeful discipline. He said that 
he did the survey that began by asking the question, imagine the worst moment in your life. If you were given the opportunity to go back and erase that moment, would you? Now, as you might expect, many people answered the question, of course, I would go back and change the worst moment in my life. But then he came with a follow-up question. Would you still erase this moment if it meant that every subsequent moment from that point on would be changed? That is to say, you would not be the same person you are now because your experiences would be radically altered. And after reflecting on this reality, he said that the majority of his responders took back their answer and said that they would not erase the worst moment in their life because it was a part of becoming the person that they were. And I wonder how you would respond to this question. Would you go back and change not only the past, but who you are now in relation to your past? Because we are all the product of both the good and the bad that has come into our lives. One of the hardest moments in my life came when my wife April and I lost an unborn child. April had been carrying the child for about five months and we went in for the ultrasound with our two youngest, our two children at the time, expecting that as a family we would meet the newest member of our family. And I remember very vividly the nurse quickly leaving the room when she could not find a heartbeat. I remember praying with my little family that our fears were not true. I remember the doctor coming in and telling us that the child had died just a day or two earlier. That night, April had to birth the child, and I remember after this child was born holding my daughter who never got to see the light of day, and how April and I sang praises to the Lord in that hospital room in faith, holding on to the promise that though God was sovereign and brought this hardship into our lives, that God was good. And I remember naming her Compassion holding on to the promise of Lamentations 3, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. You see, God had a purpose for that pain and that hardship in my life and in the life of my wife and in the life of my family. And of course, I would not have chosen that suffering, I would never, but I would never change what God sovereignly ordained, but rather yield to His purposes. And this is what we see in our text. If we would understand the hardship of our lives as God's loving discipline, then we need to yield to His sovereign plan to bring pain into our lives as each hammer blow, knowing that He is shaping us through these hardships into the image of His Son. Look at verses 7 through 11. There we read, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In these verses, the author continues to explore the analogy between the discipline of our earthly parents and the discipline of God. And he assures us again that discipline is not a sign of our being rejected, but rather a sign that we are true sons. And because of that relationship, we must be subject to the Father. This means that we must yield to the will of God in faith that His purposes are good. But it does take faith to believe this because no discipline is pleasant. It takes faith to believe that God will use the hammer blows of suffering for our good, but it is the clear testimony of Scripture that God uses such pain to train us, to mold us, to conform us into the image of His Holy Son. Earlier in Hebrews, we see that Christ Himself underwent suffering so that He too might fulfill His purpose. In Hebrews chapter 5, we read several months ago, although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, had to endure the hammer blow of God as He suffered in this world and went to the cross, taking upon Himself the sin and shame of His people, enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. We should therefore not be surprised that we too, who are sons, must learn obedience through what we have suffered and yield to it, believing, as the verse says, that it will bring forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Or as James says in chapter 1 of his book, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, it takes faith to yield to God's plan, to embrace each blow of the hammer as the means by which God is shaping you and forming you. But take heart. He is a master at his craft. He doesn't waste his energy or his time. Each trial is meant. Each hardship designed. Each pain has purpose. From the stub toe to the lost child, from the car that cuts you off to the disease that will end your life, God uses every moment of your life to conform you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, to prepare you for glory. As we have progressed through our passage, I'm sure that you, even as I, have struggled a bit with this idea of God's discipline. You might feel as though you're not up for such a life of struggle. And that probably is the right response. You're not able to endure this discipline on your own. 
You're not able to conform yourself into the image of Christ, to stoically receive the heat and the hammer blow of God. But the good news is that we are not called to endure on our own, but rather to be renewed and strengthened by the power of God's Spirit through this process that we call sanctification. Look at verses 12 through 13. There we read this. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. These verses, the author is alluding to Isaiah chapter 35. There we read something very similar that says, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. You see, the Lord has not sent you through the heat and the pressure of discipline to crush you, but rather to save you. And therefore, he quenches the fire of affliction through the presence of his Holy Spirit. He sends us the one called the Comforter to strengthen us in our weakness and to heal us in our afflictions. Again, the words of Puritan Richard Sibbs speaks to us this truth when he says, if God brings us into the trial, He will be with us in the trial and at length bring us out more refined. We shall lose nothing but dross. From our own strength we cannot bear the least trouble but by the Spirit's assistance, we can bear the greatest. You see, there have been given to each of you who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells within you and is a wellspring of strength and comfort and healing. He is the cooling waters that soothe us from the heat of trials and strengthens us in our newly gained holiness. How will you endure the hardships of life? You have to embrace the heat. You have to yield to the hammer, but you need to quench in the waters of God's Spirit. Practically speaking, that means that you need to go to those places that God has promised to bless with His Spirit. Going to His Word, hearing those Spirit-inspired words, the inerrant Word of God that will comfort your soul. It means engaging in fellowship with other believers. It's the tactic of the enemy to isolate us when we go through struggles and hardships. We want to hide, but the Word of God teaches us if, that if we would be quenched from this hardship, we must come into the fellowship of believers and receive the soothing comfort of sharing our trials with those who are also in Christ. We need to... Go to the Lord in prayer, calling out to Him, believing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Christian, this is where you will find relief. This is where you will find strength to continue your struggle against sin, embracing the Father's love, yielding to the Son's image, and quenching in the Spirit's power. As many of you know, I will be on sabbatical this summer. And as a 
part of my sabbatical, I've been focusing on the liturgies of the Reformation that have influenced our church, like the Genevan Liturgy of Calvin or the Book of Common Prayer from the Anglican tradition. And there's one man that many of you may have never heard of that keeps coming up that had a profound impact on how we do our liturgy, and his name was Martin Bucer. Now, Bucer was the reformer of the city of Strasbourg, but he is not widely known like Luther or Calvin. Bucer's work was marked by his deep commitment to the cause of the Reformation and his desire to see unity among Protestant factions. He worked tirelessly to bridge divisions between various reformers, including Lutherans and Zwinglians. His work for unity and for the spread of the Reformation came with great personal cost. He faced opposition, criticism, and at times isolation from those who did not share his vision of a unified Protestant church. However, the most challenging moment in his life came in 1548, when the Emperor Charles V declared what was called the Augsburg Interim, which imposed a return to Roman Catholicism to certain areas of Europe, including Strasbourg. Bucer opposed this decree, but in the end, he was exiled from the city that he had so tirelessly worked to reform. Could you imagine dedicating your entire life, giving all that you are to the people of this city, working to see it reformed according to the Word of God, year after year, decade after decade, and in a stroke of a pen, it's all taken away. And he had to flee to England where he spent the rest of his life. Again, many of us don't know his name. And we might feel that God providentially took away his legacy. Nevertheless, each of us who are in this room have been influenced by his work. For while he was in Strasbourg, a young man named John Calvin learned under his ministry and radically reformed the way that he did worship in Geneva. And this renewed vision of worship came to be known the Genevan liturgy, which we use today. And in exile, Bucer played a significant role in influencing the English Reformation, and he contributed greatly to the development of the Book of Common Prayer and to the 39 articles, leaving a lasting impact on the Church of England as well as on our own worship. You see, Bucer had to trust in the providence of God, because it seemed like his whole life work had been ended by the return of Roman Catholicism to Strasbourg. But in reality, the Lord used this hardship in his life to spread his influence, which we still enjoy today. The heat of persecution, the hammer of exile, led to the strengthening, not the weakening, of his work in this world. Do you feel as though you're in the forge of the Father, then you need to embrace the heat. You need to yield to the hammer. You need to quench in the waters in faith that God is forming you into a masterpiece of His love crafted into the image of His Son, 
Jesus Christ. And while we will not understand all of God's purposes for our pain on this side, when we come to glory, all of us will say, He has done all things well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, as I look out upon your people gathered here this morning, and I know many of the unspeakable hardships that they have endured, and are well aware that I am unknowing of so many of the pains and struggles that are represented in this room. I do not take lightly saying that you have sovereignly ordained each one. But Lord, we come in faith, believing your word that you are a father who loves us. And while it is difficult for us to understand in faith, we say that you are in control and that you are good. Father, teach us to yield to your good purposes and teach us to quench in the waters of your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.